Welcome to American Building, a weekly recorded show whose mission is to share an alternative perspective of what we build in America and why. Together, we discover how the work of the real estate industry connects to every American. In season two, we focused on how buildings changed as a result of the pandemic. In this season, we're revisiting conversations from previous seasons to see where Americans put their heads down at night. Together, we will discover the many definitions of home across the New York City metropolitan area, which includes over 23 million Americans. Each week, we'll visit a new building and explore complex and confusing issues related to housing access to see what they can teach us about ourselves and our country. We'll meet those who work to develop in thoughtful and impactful ways, who build neighborhoods to be more sustainable, affordable, accessible, or inclusive, who labor to create thriving communities and transform the lives of generations to come. Through their stories, we will humanize often polarizing topics. Profound, surprising, and hilarious, this show is for developers and builders with boots on the ground, for innovators trying to find ways to improve our industry, for the policymakers and public employees, and for any person who has walked by a building and wondered why. And now your host, award-winning architect turned developer and startup founder, Atif Khadr, AIA. This is American Building, and I'm your host, Atif Khadr. I'm the founder of Commonplace. Join me as I take a drive by the skylines and strip malls, crosswalks and rail crossings, balconies, buildings, and boroughs to discover a new generation of housing. Let's build common ground. In this episode, you will learn about the difference between unregulated and regulated affordable housing. Also, you'll join me in hearing about the Gateway Project, a new construction affordable multifamily project in New Brunswick, New Jersey. So when I use the terms unregulated versus regulated, it may sound like something illegal is going on in the unregulated affordable housing. Less charged terminology can also be used. That is little a affordable housing for unregulated units and big A affordable housing for regulated units. The regulation being referred to here is rent regulation, which is colloquially called rent control, rent stabilization, or rent limits. Therefore, a regulated unit is one subject to rent regulation that is specified through what is called a regulatory agreement. In practice, that means the rent that can be charged for the unit is bounded, as are the increases. Housing units not subject to this are unregulated affordable housing, and those, in industry language, are called naturally occurring affordable housing, or NOAA, workforce housing, or just housing in inexpensive areas. Regulated affordable housing is defined by area median income or AMI limits. 
AMI is a metric used to measure the median, not average, annual income for households of varying sizes in a particular geographic area. A complex formula is used to determine rent limits based on AMI limits using the standard that a resident in a regulated affordable housing unit should spend no more than 30% of his or her income on rent and related housing expenses. Given the real income of the American office worker has effectively remained unchanged since the 1980s, as per a recent study by MIT, the demand for affordable housing is high. So regulated units often have long waiting lists. For example, at La Peninsula in New York's Bronx Borough, 75,000 people applied for just 183 units in the first phase of the development. As the housing crunch has become more severe in places like Metro New York City, even relatively high income earners are qualifying for affordable housing. This is increasing and diversifying the type of person eligible for regulated affordable housing. Barbara Ballinger writes about this for Realtor Magazine in her recent article, How Affordable Housing is Changing. Check it out in the show notes. Despite this demand, supply is the issue. Building new regulated developments is hard because of high barriers to entry based on existing political relationships, complex financing structures, and limitations to economic upside from the rent controls. Also, there are often as or more expensive to build than market rate units. There is a misconception that regulated affordable housing is not high quality. This is often not true. Many are class A and B with amenities and are operated by experienced operators. So where does the money come in? Institutional capital can invest in regulated affordable housing in two ways. First, through buying affordable housing portfolios, which typically have near 0% vacancy and steady collections. Second, institutional capital can buy low-income housing tax credits, which are a creative mechanism for corporations with tax obligations to fund affordable housing now and forego income taxes with a bonus over the long term. Because financing regulated affordable housing is slow and complex, many developers are trying to develop unregulated affordable housing with other incentives or no incentives at all. This has attracted new capital towards multifamily development in general and unregulated affordable housing development specifically. In this episode of American Building, I am sharing an edited version of the conversation I had in February 2022 with developer Andrew Regenstreich. Andrew was formerly the Director of Real Estate at Housing and Neighborhood Development Services, or HANS for short. HANS is a nonprofit affordable housing development organization based in Essex County, New Jersey. Prior to that, he worked at New Jersey Community Capital. He is a graduate of Northeastern University and New York University. Enjoy the conversation. And if you are interested in more stories related to housing and impact, visit the Commonplace website. Commonplace is the company I founded to make it easier to finance impactful real estate projects. Thank you so much for being here with us, Andrew. 
One of your previous experiences and where you effectively began this career in economic development was at New Jersey Community Capital. Yeah. Could you explain what they do and then what your role there was? Sure. So in short, New Jersey Community Capital, they're, and I, I think this classification is central to what they do, they're what you call a community development finance institution, otherwise known as CDFI. And CDFIs, it's a treasury department designation mm -hmm. that gives money to certified members. There's a whole certification process to facilitate change within the communities they serve, primarily through lending functions. So New Jersey Community Capital, they, they do a lot of different things. They do charter school lending, real estate development lending. They have a lot of different funds dealing with small business, economic development, uh, various equity initiatives. Mm -hmm. uh, they're, they're a source of capital. Uh, and with that comes a lot of different opportunities to effectuate change. And when I joined New Jersey Community Capital, they were just scaling out a development arm. So the head of New Jersey Community Capital at the time, uh, Wayne Meyer, uh, who actually used to be the, the director of real estate at, at Hands, mm -hmm. was very smart, had a whole array of experiences in the financial world, in the legal world, um, real estate world. I think he was in accounting by training. And when he was director of real estate at Hands, he realized the importance of using private sector tactics to facilitate change. Mm -hmm. So what, one example, and this, this leads into what New Jersey Community Capital ended up doing, was he was part of a team of academics and community leaders that ended up buying non-performing mortgage notes, I believe from J.P. Morgan Chase. Mm -hmm. The goal was to breathe life into the underlying assets behind these notes, the houses. And he, you know, after completing the purchase, I don't have the full TikTok on, on that. I'm sure it wasn't easy. But, at, you know, after, after doing this, he then had the ability to start dealing with these vacant properties and putting them back into productive use and hence revitalizing the blocks, um, if not the neighborhoods where these properties were. So eventually that program, it was called Operation Neighbor Recovery, gravitated to New Jersey Community Capital, where it was rebranded as Community Asset Preservation Corporation. Community Asset Preservation Corporation, it still exists today, is a phenomenally su successful development entity existing within New Jersey Community Capital that does everything from rehabilitating abandoned properties to small condo developments in emerging neighborhoods and, and everything in between. Mm -hmm. When I joined, you know, their, their coming out party, if you will, was the bulk purchase of a lot of FHA mortgages. And, you know, the, the idea was to operate in a volume that's big enough that they could really effectuate change. So it was my job to make sense of that. You know, I was, I was part of a team that did this, but my responsibilities were to come up with a system or at least help come up with a system to make sense of these mortgages that we were thinking about buying, figure out a appropriate price for those mortgages mm -hmm. and an ultimate disposition strategy. So you know, that was really led by, by Wayne and the coalition he had put together previously, um, as well as my boss at the time, Jeff Crum. But it was a real eye opener to the extent 
of the abandonment problem in New Jersey. So this is 2012. We're just a, you know, a couple of years past the Great Recession. Mm-hmm. And the opportunity in revitalization strategies um, that we could use to be a, you know, a, a positive catalyst for, for, for change and really statewide. And Capsi ended up growing from what was then a pretty small shop. Um, I think we operated just a few municipalities to not only a statewide organization, but I believe a tri-state uh, organization. So at the very least, it's New York, New Jersey, and Florida. And they might actually have operations elsewhere at this point. So I wear a lot of hats, end up wearing a lot of hats, as, as we all do in this profession. Mm-hmm. You know, everything from acquisition to project management to helping implement organizational processes and procedures as we grew. But it really just started with due diligence on a bulk mortgage acquisition that ended up being a centerpiece of the development strategy that resided within New Jersey Community Capital. And then the focus at HANDS is the production of affordable housing, but also related services um, that focus more broadly on wealth generation and creation. So what does that those terms mean and why do you think that's important? Sure. So the name of the game is to leave the house, the lot, the block, the neighborhood better than when you found it. Mm-hmm. And affordability is an extremely important part of that. People need to be able to afford what you're producing. From there, uh, I think it can go in a lot of different directions. You know, going back to the central principle that uh, you want to leave whatever it is you're working on better. So at Hands, Hands is a very interesting place. It, it started in 1986, started very small with the desire to to do what I just mentioned, to leave mm-hmm. their piece of the world a little bit better. And in 1986, what that meant was really digging in to the, you know, again, going back to this abandonment issue. And in 1986 in Orange, that, that was certainly an issue. And they started off just focusing on, on that. You know, how do we repair this one property? How do we repair the property next door? You know, how do we come up with a strategy for this block? Um, let's focus on neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. So that's that's in, in the DNA. But as you start really approaching one problem, you start seeing what a multi-layered dynamic exists that's mm-hmm. inhibiting your ability to really effectuate change. So for example, there was a at the time a lack of you know, places to, to eat. So, you know, one of the things that was done early on was, was start a restaurant for a place to eat good food and congregate and, 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 and watch live music. There was a need for arts-based programming. So Hands was at the forefront of creating an arts-based organization. Uh, still exists today. It's called Valley Arts. Mm-hmm. Economic Development Initiatives giving out grants to spearhead various programs. And over the decades, that's really evolved to the point where we do extensive planning efforts to really understand what's going on in the neighborhoods we serve so so we could figure out what programs they're asking for and what we could do. It, it moved on from just doing doing development. And, and in this case, we actually do, we're, we're fairly unique. It's, it's not just affordable housing. 
It's mixed-use housing where we do commercial and residential. It's just commercial. You know, we really the, the idea is to insert some vibrancy into into where we're operating. We've overlaid that with home improvement program. It's you know small grants for people to improve their homes, a small business program, small grants for businesses to make capital improvements or make payroll, order goods, you know financial education type initiatives where people can learn best case practices in financial management, increasing mm-hmm. increasing their wealth, and so on and so on. So the idea here is the problems we're trying to tackle are complicated involving a lot of different parts for a lot of different reasons. So affordable housing, you know, again, is very important, but it's just one piece of the puzzle. So adopting notions such as economic development or wealth creation, we think play to the larger issues here and allow us to incorporate many different tools to get to where we want to go. Okay, so let's talk then about Orange, New Jersey and the challenges of developing there? So I guess I would put it a different way. You know, almost anything you do is is going to face challenges. There's a very funny Yiddish quote, basically, God, you know, man, man plans, God laughs. <laughs> and in, in between the, the planning and laughing, I think, is is your different viewpoints and different perspectives and different motivations and just life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Orange in that case is not unique. It's hard work because it's, it's, it's hard work. It's also more challenging to operate in environments that are not fully fully what they could be. Mm-hmm. Uh, Orange has tremendous potential. It's got two train lines. It's a beautiful city with beautiful people, a nice history, but it's it's still a work in progress. And you know with that becomes economic constraints. The price of materials is the price of materials. And if you can't get the rent you would get in Jersey City, there tends to be a gap, mm-hmm. which adds layers to the process. It involves more parties. It involves more creativity, maybe some more ingenuity. And you know, each each sort of like wor- word or process you you add to something, you know, becomes the God laughing thing, where mm-hmm. it just it's another opportunity for something to go wrong just because it goes wrong. So, the, so I'd say the challenge in Orange is just bridging the gap between where Orange will be and where it it, it is now. Yeah, but but we're we're also lucky. It's you know over the last almost forty years we've developed the culture of participation and community and utility. So we don't feel like we're on that journey alone. There's a lot of people who really care about Orange and want to see it succeed. And this administration, to their credit has done a lot of good work as well. So they've worked also very hard to get Orange to a certain point. Mm-hmm. When you say administration, you mean the municipal administration, yeah. the mayoral office? Right. Okay. Um, so so committed staff and, and invested administration, and we're all sort of, sort of working together to get Orange to, to the promised land. But really the challenges are what you see in any kind of urban climate. You know, it's, it's a lot of different vested parties, it's the need to involve various government entities to complete projects, uh, each with their own process and structure and way of doing things. So, you know, it's it's a big tent trying to do big things and invariably challenges occur. So 523 Freeman Street, what is the site 
like in terms of, I'm not going to say challenges considering what you said earlier. What are the opportunities of that site? Tell us about it. Sure. So the biggest opportunity is its central location. Mm-hmm. It exists right next to one of the two train stations in Orange and right off, excuse me, a major thoroughfare that goes through Orange, which is Scotland Road. And then in terms of the project by the numbers, walk us through the numbers of stories, number of square foot. So we get a gauge of what, what's going on on the site in terms of your, your development response. Sure. So it's, it's about half an acre lot and the project is four stories. Mm-hmm. The first floor, it's about 2,500 total, uh, which will be about 1,500 commercial. And then the, the systems will be on the ground floor as well. And then there's three floors, each about 3,300 feet, 3,400 mm-hmm. feet of three units each. So a four-story building, nine units of residential, and roughly 1,500 square feet of commercial. Okay, so it works out to about 1,000 square feet a unit, plus or minus. What's the unit mix that you're going for, and how did you end up on that unit mix? Sure. So it's it's currently in flux, but it's, it's going to be a mixture of ones and twos. Mm-hmm. And really what we're trying to tap into is young urban professionals, orange residents who are looking for you know their first place after leaving mm-hmm. their parents' house potentially, and also empty nesters from the surrounding towns. Um, and we thought a mixture of ones and twos would best represent that demographic. Okay. So it sounds like that the way that you decide on the unit mix was reflective of the, the need for units in that particular area then? Yeah. Okay. And then we understand that affordable housing often has special design and construction requirements. So tell us about the team that you put together to uh, address some of those issues and then create the overall product that you're, that you're planning on building. Sure. So affordable housing can have specific design requirements depending on what financing sources you use. Mm-hmm. For example, low-income housing tax credits requires certain unit sizes. Other sources do as well. In this case, we were pretty confident that we would easily meet the baseline requirements. However, our, our charge, if you will, our, ch- our challenge was to reconcile the affordability and, and the desire for people to be able to, of all demographics, to live there with a superior design quality. And want to make sure the outputs match, match the inputs. And we didn't want to give the impression that we were scotch taping something together because we had to. So I got lucky. I have a very good team that was able to reconcile the need to make it affordable with that superior design. So the team, it's the Yule Brothers, who it's a fantastic architecture firm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually one of our tenants. They, they made their home in, in Orange. Oh, so they're um, going to be renting the commercial space. They're actually, they're renters now. We have a few buildings around the corner and they're, they're one of our tenants. Mm-hmm. And they're special people. They come from big, a big architecture background, but they also have the sensibilities of a, a small community-oriented architect. Mm-hmm. So you know they, they lead with um, not only ingenuity and cre- creativity, some of the soft skills they have and, and commitment to the neighborhood, but they really try to align contemporary notions of lived experiences with a healthy respect for the neighborhoods in which the design is occurring and and really teasing in, and this came about through our process, 
you know, the history of the neighborhood, mm-hmm. how the buildings interact, the materials, the size, the scope. So they, they think in terms of tapestries. It's, you know, they're, they're artists, but they also have, you know, planning sensibilities and the technical expertise to, to put it together. And they, and they really believe in what Hans is trying to do mm-hmm. and, and the power of the neighborhood. So, you know, and, and with that comes, you know, an extra level of, of soul, if you will. Um, so we've really gotten lucky there. You know, I, my experience has taught me a good, good land use attorney is, is extremely important. Mm-hmm. Land use, you know, it, it, it's making sure that I's are dotted, T's are crossed in terms of what's allowed, in terms of what the area redevelopment plans say you could do. Um, but also knowing when to to stretch things, when to ask for what we call a variance, where mm-hmm. um, okay, a plan says this, but in order to make the project happen, we would like to do something more, something different, and that takes a lot of creativity and experience and persistence. So we have a great land use attorney. His name is Benjamin Wine. He works for a firm called Prime and Truvol, who are extremely competent and hardworking and persistent and, you know, just great land use attorneys. Uh, we have a good civil engineer planner. Her name is Kirsten Ostercombe, who sort of fits within the theme of this team, which is young, hungry, and, and dedicated. Everyone believes mm-hmm. in this mission. They're tying in not only their extensive professional expertise, but also a real desire mm-hmm. to move neighborhoods f- forward. And, and spend the time to do that. So it's, you know, it's, it's a great team. New Jersey Transit is part of this because we are utilizing some of their land um, and they've been fantastic. And then New Jersey Community Capital actually has been really great as strategic partners in helping think through how we could do this project as well. So walk us through what our listeners would see when they visit the building as it will be when it's completed? Sure. So the, the design's still in flux, but the main picture I want to paint for the viewers is, is an initial impression about what, what the Valley could hold, where it's been, where it's now, um, and what it could be. And to do that, we've been very careful with how we framed out what the design could be. Like I mentioned before, the Valley has industrial past. It's a lot of factories. It was blue collar, working class, but very community centered. And we want this building to to be just that. And the present manifestation of that is uh, a commitment to small businesses, Mm -hmm. to health and wellness, to, you know, arts-based programming. So what, what the building aims to achieve is... You know, conjuring up visions on on the industrial past, so mm-hmm. it's going to be a brick facade. Um, it's big, spacious uh, residential units where you know you think think your Soho loft, where you could engage in a wide array of activities, and you, know, you don't feel like you're in an urban environment. Were you thinking of calling this perhaps Soho West? Is your your the name of your project? <laughs> so. We could uh, right now. It's the gateway, but uh, okay. Soho West. <laughs> Do you know, actually, it's funny that you're, that we, we mentioned that because uh, originally before Hoboken became Hoboken, there was a tongue-in-cheek and descriptor of it from the earliest 
residential brokers calling it Soho West. Yeah. Uh, so like that, that upper part of Jersey City and the lower part of Hoboken around uh, the train yards. But uh, there it is. That's that's the brand name perhaps for Orange well, New Jersey Soho West. I feel like at this point, I, I should give a shout out to, to my wife who her profession is advertising and marketing. Right. So I really internalized the notion of portraying something through targeted use of words and pictures mm-hmm. and and narratives. Mm-hmm. So we could definitely take that consideration. Okay. Is it you know it, it, words tell a story. It's it sounds you know sounds simple, but you know whether it's Gateway or Soho West, we want to conjure up an an, an image even before that visual occurs. So so you know I I want the viewers to have and and you know just you know, for viewers who don't know Orange or haven't seen renderings, you know, I think Soho West is is a good is a good frame actually. Mm-hmm. So you know, bright, spacious uh, residential units, you know, ground floor commercial, where we aim to put tenants in there that will be really integrated into the community, perhaps makerspace, where uh, you know whether it's light industrial or you know some kind of activity that that contributes to to an essence of the, of, of this neighborhood. We're going to have public art and a rain garden. You know, we, we want this to be an, an oasis where people are, are comfortable. They feel proud to call it home. And they really feel like they're part of a lineage that's very proud and purposeful. So is affordable housing really necessary in America? Why? And can you please explain the difference between little a affordable and big a affordable? To answer the question, I think in a way that does service to your listeners, I'll slightly change the premise. Do people's wages align with housing? That is an excellent, excellent point of view switch. And explain why you're, why you're saying that. So affordability is important, mm-hmm. of course. And one way to define it is the price of an apartment. Mm-hmm. Another way is to define it by what people could afford. And I think the two are conflated very often, yes. um, but they're 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 different. I think in several ways. For instance, if everyone could afford two thousand dollars a month in rent, then it doesn't seem to be a problem that um, rent is two thousand dollars a month. Mm-hmm. It's when their wages can't afford it, then it becomes a problem. Mm-hmm. So what do you do? Do you lower the cost of housing to comport with what people could afford? Or do you raise people's wages? Or do you increase the supply of housing? So another another way to look at it, is, right. So we'll just, just stick on that on that one point, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I would argue you need a little bit of both. So what that would necessitate is to take a step back and focus on the adaptive challenge of increasing economic activity in a way that's equitable for, for everyone. Mm-hmm. And I think that cuts a little bit into the affordability issue. Now, it... It won't do everything. Another way you could approach it is increase the supply of housing. So restrictive zoning tenants, uh, tenements across the country, in study after study has shown, increases the, the price of housing, supply and demand. I can tell you as a city planning commissioner in Hoboken, a small, very wealthy city in North Jersey, I wish I had the opportunity to hand out Oscars for some of the performances that people give about the provision of affordable housing or any other new development in their city, absolutely destroying the life that they live in their $4 million townhouse. So please, yes, I would yeah. love to hear another one of those. <laughs> well, and that's, I think that's 
that's a byproduct of, of an us first them mentality, yes. right? Where you need to lower the cost of housing because that's the only way you approach afford- affordability. And if you're living in a $4 million condo, on one hand, squared off against someone who is making a forced magnitude or percentage below the area medium income, it's going to be antagonistic. They're, you know, right. But if you try to put forth programs and processes that result in everyone, I mean, we're, we're a, what, a $20 trillion economy. There's a lot of room where people could participate. They're not. That's a problem. That's a structural inefficiency in mm-hmm. our macro economy. But I think if you can, if you could start digging into that a little bit, then a byproduct of that will be making things more affordable. You know, for instance, a CEO now makes what, 400 times what the average worker makes. That wasn't always the case. Mm-hmm. If you could reduce that gap a little bit and then also increase the supply of, of housing in general, and actually, there's there's been studies that, that have shown that market rate housing increases the affordability in, in neighborhoods. So, just increase the supply. I think you'll you'll get at least part of the way towards accomplishing the goal of making things more more affordable. We we, think- we have an affordability problem. Affordable housing is important, but I think we could be we could define it in a, in a more broad based way, and and that sticks to this notion of let's facilitate economic development. And, and wealth creation. Mm-hmm. I think particularly what I find so emblematic of the absolute clown clown car or the clown show that is the budget reconciliation project uh, process on Capitol Hill right now is the war against things that actually allow people to work. So, for example, the allowance for the expiration of the child care tax credit right. um, is just one tiny example of this larger system that we've allowed to create, I think, with our, our government, where we celebrate wealth over work. And right. I think that once we go down that path, you end up in a scenario where the idea of affordability is one that is so tainted with politics that uh, any aspect of it seems like there is this zero-sum game where if you allow for a housing in Hoboken that is affordable to a cleaning person or affordable to a firefighter or a police person, then somehow you have absolutely destroyed the way that that city exists. And I think as long as that fallacy exists, it's going to be so difficult to get any of these solutions across the board in a large national way as is necessary. Yeah. And I, you know, still, still another angle to this is fed policy where Mm -hmm. for, for a lot of decades, the supremacy of, of inflation was used as the frame for how we make certain decisions. Oh, that (laughs) we can't have nice things because otherwise it's going to make inflation, right? That's, that's exactly what I'm saying. And specifically, we can't have people like it's a bad thing if wages rise. It's not been my lived experience where you know, I'm, I'm not an economist, full disclosure. So any economists who are listening to this, you're right, I'm not. But do you know the best part is that the decision makers themselves are an economist. Well, <laughs> so, there you go. And, and ask yourself, how many people in the U.S. Senate are real estate developers? Uh-huh. <laughs> how many people actually understand this process? Really? So. And, and maybe we should all be humble about what we, we don't know. And, and maybe a little bit, you know, on the flip side, a little bit more confident in what we, we do know. And, and that is your lived experience. And the benefit that I've had is having a lot of different experiences. I could speak intelligently about rural areas of, 
of Jordan, just as much as I could speak to planning efforts in Jersey City, consulting services in the UK tech market, mm-hmm. and and sort of everything in between. And I just I highlight to I guess that you know a little insight into how how I think in in general. I value experience and perspective. I don't believe there's a, a right or wrong. I think there's a lot of gray in between. And specifically with affordability, I don't think it's a bad thing to create the macro conditions where people can can live. Mm-hmm. I have two young kids. Um, I cannot imagine what it's like to make you know ten dollars an hour, fifteen dollars mm-hmm. an hour. I have my respect is endless for people mm-hmm. who exist with limited resources and try to account for basic needs, mm-hmm. healthcare, housing, you know, that, that needs to change. And I, you know, what, going back to my experiences, what, what I think is really important to, to insert into this discussion is allowing greater participation in the economy in a more fruitful way. And, and that's a whole nother conversation on how to do that. But mm-hmm. I, I do think it's a frame that really needs to be paid attention to. So speaking of frameworks, help our listeners understand what this black hole of incentives for affordable housing is perhaps at the level of government, maybe explain that and also the categories of incentives that exist. So there's a framework for people to understand what this is. Sure. So when you go to different countries, very often you have to learn a different language. Mm -hmm. You have to learn about different institutions. You have to learn about different gatekeepers so at, at this point, I'd like to introduce you to the, the country of affordable housing incentives. It's, <laughs> that is amazing. Go ahead. Yeah, it's for the untrained slash trained eye. It's very opaque. And you have to learn about, first of all, what, what types of incentives are, are out there. That's, that's fact finding in itself. What are the applications and qualifications like for those different applications? How does it tie into you know, a, a capital stack, you know, do you do low income housing tax credits or community development block grant funds? And, you know, why do this and why do that? And why don't do this? Why don't do that? Um, how does it all fit together? That's, that's, a, that's his own puzzle piece. Mm-hmm. What's the push pull? If I do this, what do I give up in return? Who's the gatekeeper? Why are they making decisions? Um, how am I being scored? What's worth my energy? What's not? There's probably a thousand micro decisions you need to make after you figure it out what's even out there. So, you know, it's complicated because, you know, before Redis, I, there was not many centralized systems that mm-hmm. w- would allow you to to plug in a scenario. You know, mm-hmm. it's, I think a huge advantage of Redis actually, and and spit out what you should be focused on because you're also dealing with an industry that 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 has limited resources, both on the personnel and financial front. So. I can't spend six months trying to untangle all these different things I mentioned mm-hmm. because you know I don't have six months to chill. Yeah. So it's it's complicated because you know we're we're not a command economy, so that's mm-hmm. that's part of it. Like there's no centralized housing policy. The policy changes state to state, municipality to municipality, and over the last bunch of decades what's manifest has been a result of that. It's, you know, different things occur at different moments for different reasons. And that's very complicated. One thing that we like to think of uh, redist in terms of understanding incentives is the division and the relationship between incentives at the federal level 
the state level and the local level. Mm -hmm. And what is fascinating is the flow of money comes from the local level from taxpayers up to the federal government and then back through a waterfall of incentives. Understanding that is very important. And then understanding the idea of incentive twins. So those are the ones that exist at the federal level and have a twin at the, the state level or exist at the state level and have a twin at the local level. Right. Those are frameworks that we use to help understand uh, opportunity. And the other one is categorization. Uh, so that particularly are the vehicles by which the incentive bill is delivered. And the most common ones are tax credits, tax abatements, mm-hmm. low interest financing, zero interest financing, grants, and rebates. Uh, yeah. And below that, there are some more exotic species uh, like zoning bonuses, but uh, those tend to be the, the dominant ones that, um, that we think about. And each one of those categories has different funding sources mm-hmm. with different political constituencies and different you know, scoring criteria, different types of byproducts they're willing, mm-hmm. they're, they're trying to stimulate. And then wrapped up in that is the priorities of municipalities or a particular state or even the federal government, which mm-hmm. always change. So it's, it's, it's a shifting narrative. It's shifting array of, of actors, all sorts of things. You may be interested in knowing this, Andrew, since you are a political junkie uh, like me. So I was in Washington, D.C. last week, and I was chatting with congressional staffers that, that I'm friends with. Also, actually, one of the Rita's team members is a former congressional staffer for a congressperson from Illinois. And we learned that the... Uh, of the reconciliation budget, the most bipartisan, the most popular part of it behind closed doors is all of the real estate tax credit incentives. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that is one that uh, whatever your political party affiliation, it just screams yes. This idea that you do not have a current outlay of cash, you're able to push that into the future as a government and use uh, private sector as a means for delivering that cash up front to allow for a social good to happen like affordable housing. Most brilliant mechanism there is. What we also understood is that very much so the opposition uh, that is happening pretty much to a T within 50% of the U.S. Senate, the reconciliation, um, has to do with political posturing. And the reality is, from having talked to the staff of one of the Republican uh, senators, is that the intention is once January comes next year, that the reconciliation budget is going to be passed in another form. It's going to be this, the same exact thing, just a different name, perhaps. And the tax credits for affordable housing, the tax credits for middle-income housing, affordable housing, and also as a side for uh, energy efficiency in buildings, is by the number one thing that will be part of that. So uh, <laughs> it's both absolutely maddening, and it's also uh, both uh, comforting as well to know that's the case. Yeah, it, it makes perfect sense. Uh, you know, just just go back to tax credits in, in particular. Uh, you know, I we start off the podcast saying I, I learned something from each one of my experiences, but the, the human element sort of carried 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 through. And it always seems incumbent to me to find an area that touch upon each particular person's priorities and allow the human element to come out. With mm-hmm. with tax credits, I think it's a great example of of interest aligning. Mm-hmm. Corporations want to pay less taxes. Organizations committed to some kind of social purpose want to further that social purpose. And a lot of times it needs it needs money. So the tax credit is a genius way of allowing the government to retain 
its role in, in all this stuff while allowing corporations to pay less taxes and social service organizations writ large to do what they do. You know, tax credit does all that. So, mm-hmm. you know, government wants to be involved in the process because, you know, just, just because, you know, anyone wants to be relevant. It's, it's a human thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so they get to be relevant. Corporations get to go back to their stakeholders and say, you know, we're paying less taxes um, and doing good. So it's an extra, extra check mark. Mm-hmm. Um, social organizations who a lot of times have greater ties to the communities they serve get to say, we're able to effectuate the change we want to effectuate because here's this money. So I'm at, I'm very fascinated with the possibilities tax credits hold. I think we've just hundred percent the surface. It really could be a very powerful tool for a lot of things. Mm-hmm. I agree. And then, so we've talked about the framework of understanding incentives. We've talked about the political intrigue on Capitol Hill. One thing that I think our listeners might be interested in is understanding the timeline and how do incentives impact, say, critical design and construction timelines from, say, example, projects that you have worked on. Help us understand where this process fits into your design and construction schedule. Yeah. Sometimes it it does. uh, And sometimes it doesn't. (laughs) It it doesn't. I think a more universal perspective is the need to put a capital stack together Mm -hmm. in an appropriate time frame. And incentives have an application process. They're not all the same. But they, again, sometimes they align, sometimes they, they don't. Mm-hmm. So take low-income housing tax credits. You need to have a lot of things checked off before you could even apply for low-income housing tax credits. Mm-hmm. So you need site control, you need you need plans, you need a budget, all that stuff. And there's, there's an upfront cost to, to do that. So, you know, as an organization, you know you need to be capitalized to a certain level. You, other non-tax credit stuff... You know, sometimes you need site control, sometimes you don't. But really, broadly speaking, incentives are just one piece of the puzzle that you're going to have to work through. And it, mm-hmm. you know, it, it works the same as any other piece of the capital stack where, you know, you have to pay attention to the timeline. You have to understand your costs, what you could outlay, what you could afford to, you know, to, to, to pay up front what you can mm-hmm any governmental constraints, the city wants you to complete the project in a certain amount of time, who your stakeholders are, perhaps you have an equity investor in a project that also needs subsidy. So when does that equity investor need their money back? Mm -hmm. Are they more patient? So I guess the way I would answer the question is it really depends on what the subsidy source is, who your stakeholders are, what your liquidity looks like, uh, how much cash can you really burn through and what size the project. So you know, it's it's another reason why I think, you know, and, and I truly mean this, Redis is providing great service is you're evening out those rough edges. So thank you so much for taking the time to be on the American Building Podcast, Andrew. Thanks for joining me today on American Building. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe on your favorite listening app and don't forget to rate and review. And friends, I've teamed up with writers for the New York Times and Dwell Magazine to launch a digital media platform to tell the fascinating stories of the impact developers and capital providers I work with at Commonplace. Check it out at commonplace.us.